Welcome to For the Life of Me podcast, where I share musings and perspectives on how we really, truly live a life divine. Even in a world with so much turmoil and uncertainty, we can still find our divine connection to source and find strength, courage, love, resilience, and beauty. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Julie Pyatt, your host. Hey, beloved global family, thanks for tuning in from across the multiverse. I'm so honored and happy to share across this medium. It's such a powerful medium of connection and communication, the podcast. Um, And today I'm inviting a, a very special guest named Tyler Yarrow, who I actually met on Instagram, and she has been advocating for the Tongass rainforest in Southeast Alaska. This is a heartfelt connection from two individuals. And because of my connection with Alaska, the fact that I was raised in Anchorage, and my dad spent uh, many, many years of his life actually representing uh, the native cultures in Anchorage and surrounding areas as a civil engineer, I just felt drawn and called to reach out to Tyler to learn more about her life passion, her living situation, and just really what she wants to share with us about this very beloved nature sort of mecca, you know, lungs of the planet and an area that we should all care very much about. So Tyler, welcome to For the Life of Me. Yeah, it is an honor to be here with you today. I'm I'm really glad we were able to connect. It feels um, quite serendipitous to me. I've definitely been positively impacted by all the works of love that you've put out into the world. And so to be able to sort of come full circle with it feels uh, really great. And I I reached out to you because I, I knew vaguely that you had some connection with the North. I wasn't sure what it was or even how I knew that. It was just sort of a sense, maybe I've heard you talk about it at some point in the past. But um, as we move through this time of intense deregulation of our ecosystems, uh, you seemed like the perfect person to connect with and to discuss what's what's happening up here. Well, that's really um, beautiful to hear. Yeah, same for me. I haven't been directly sort of in communion with conservation and protection of our of our lands and our forests. So I'm so curious and looking so forward to this conversation today to find out more about you and to learn more about this very sacred ecosystem um, that is you know, our treasure and also our responsibility to care for. So before we get into it, can you just uh, give me a little bit of your background of your lineage and how you come to find yourself living where you're living? Uh, For a non-Indigenous Alaskan, I have fairly deep roots here. Both of my parents um, moved to Anchorage uh, in their infancy. Both of them uh, came from military families. And that, that, that makes me pretty deeply rooted here. Alaska is a place of uh, great tra- transience for the non-Indigenous population. And so I was born in Anchorage and grew up um, in East Anchorage, right at the boundary um, of what is a pretty urban city uh, by Northern standards and some of the most untouched and immense wilderness left on the planet. And so my whole childhood kind of straddled those two worlds. and. I, although I didn't um, fully appreciate my connection to these landscapes uh, as a child when I left for school and to go out into the world and <laughs> to explore, um, I realized just how magnificent and singular and really special my home was. And so for the last few years, I've been reinvesting myself and sort of rooting myself in a community that I feel uh, really deeply connected to. I live in Haynes, Alaska, which is in um, the very northern part of the southeast part of the state. Um, so if you if you picture the outline of Alaska, uh, in the bottom right-hand corner, there's like that little shoot-off that goes down to the side at kind of an angle. Um, and that's, that's southeast Alaska. It's the inside passage. It's where everyone goes on cruises. Um, and I live at like the northern terminus of that. So uh, sort of in between 
the temperate rainforest ecosystem that starts in the Pacific Northwest and winds its way up along the coast of Canada and into Alaska and a more northern sort of Arctic ecosystem. So I'm situated in a place that is just uh, sort of indescribably beautiful. It's really, really profound. I'm so thankful every single day to be here. It's so amazing. And when you are Instagramming those videos of bears, are those actually bears that you're seeing in your everyday life? Very much so. So in my mid-20s, I worked a couple of seasons as a wilderness guide and as a bear viewing guide. So out in really remote places, some of the most remote places on the planet at this point, no roads, no communities, just like wilderness. And uh, my partner and I ran a tent camp um, for a very fancy lodge where photographers from uh, places like Nat Geo would come and stay with us to photograph bears. And we just kind of like cooked for them and started their fires and, um, you know, kept bears out of the camp. Uh, so I have a lot of bear imagery from, from that time in my life, but also where I live now, the town I live in is um, only about 2000 people and it's very remote. There's, there's really no other towns for hundreds or even thousands of miles in any direction. And so Bears are a part of daily life. Like I carry a marine flare with me um, basically all the time. Um, it's like a lightsaber <laughs> for the wilderness. Um, and what type of bears are these? The Tongass is home to definitely the most dense population of black bears on earth and perhaps the most dense population of grizzlies. That's sort of, there's sort of a, a debate about whether that's here or over on Kodiak Island or on Lake Clark and Katmai, which is where um like fat bear week <laughs> happens um, recently in the news. But yeah, both populations are quite dense. What is your training if you happen upon a bear? I mean, the, the, the photos that I see you posting seem rather casual. <laughs> but I know that, you know, bears are, first of all, they are very fast, like lightning fast and powerful beyond measure. So um, give us a little bit of, of bear protocol the the way that I often describe it is that bears have a really similar relationship with humans as humans have with ants. So like if there are ants around you, you're not really worried about it until that ant like crawls on your food or like onto your body, then you're going to maybe swat it off and perhaps um, care less about its existence. But if it's just sort of hanging out in the area, not really a problem. And bears are very much that way with people. Um, seeing a bear is not a problem as long as there's like a bit of distance and you're both aware of each other. The only time that human bear interactions um, become problematic is when, when the human and the bear surprise each other, maybe around a, a forested corner on a trail or perhaps, um, you know, a human sort of interferes with a bear's feeding process, like gets a little bit too close to a food source, something like that. That's typically when negative encounters arise. So yeah, I definitely fall in the, in the camp of non-lethal bear deterrence, which is, it's very much a choice. Like I'm surrounded by people who, who choose to carry guns. And I, I understand it because the immensity of the energy, the immensity of the presence of the bear is so powerful that the, the need to protect oneself feels very real. They are absolutely in charge. <laughs> But for me, it feels more appropriate to just walk really lightly and to move slowly and to listen and to enjoy that experience of knowing what it feels like to uh, potentially be prey on a regular basis, which I, I really value. And it's been a really humbling experience in my life. Wow, that's amazing. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm viewing you on Instagram through the very uh, real, um, um, you know, all-inclusive lens of Instagram and I have to say, you know, you posted pictures of you with, with your dog and you, you have a very exotic look about you. Like I wouldn't have been surprised if you had told me that you were indigenous. What is your background? What is your mom and dad's background and your, your family lineage? You know, I'm actually very much in the process of trying to learn more about that right now and doing some research. Um, my family is one that carries some very heavy burdens of trauma. Um, I was raised by a group of adults who loved me very much. I never lacked for love, but they 
had a lot of unhealed wounds that they still carried themselves. And a lot of that was perpetuated. And the immensity of that trauma is, is, um, is so heavy that there's been a disconnection from even just really a generation or two back. No one really knows who we are or where we came from. I think the best sort of guess is perhaps like Irish, German, Western European, that kind of thing. Yeah, because when I look at you, like you have, if I remember correctly, you have like clear blue type of eyes. Is that right? Bluish? Yeah. Greenish? Yep. Yeah. And and the dog, like the Malamute Husky, you know, Alaskan typical dog, which I don't know if that's the kind of dog you have, but that's kind of what I remember. And you have like the same color kind of eyes, the high cheekbones, like you look like you have something in there. I would be interested to know. I find it curious that you have landed in this place of this great reverence for the land. In my realm, you know, we are multidimensional beings living many lifetimes. So this doesn't have to be present in this physical family line. Um, obviously, it is resonating with you and calling to your heart. And that's why you found yourself advocating for it. So talk to us about um, the Tongass and, and what it is to you and what it is to the planet. Absolutely. So when I think about and talk about the Tongass, I like to start at the sort of macro scale and then zoom into the micro. So if you sort of visualize or imagine uh, floating up off the surface of the earth and through the atmosphere and out into the edge of space, and you look down at the planet and let's say you stay on the night side. So you're, you're observing the earth below you at night and you're seeing the, the electric grid and that sort of orange glow of lights and um, the, the inner dispersed pieces of uh, sort of more wild or undeveloped land. And if you, if you observe the whole world in this way, the, the level of development is pretty profound, right? There's not that many places left that are largely undeveloped. And some of the ones that are, like perhaps Antarctica or the Sahara, are places that are not really suited for large-scale human um, existence. They're not, they're not these really nourishing places in terms of like water and vegetation and all that. And so if we focus in just on what is left that, that is really nourishing, that is um, a robust ecosystem that's sustaining uh, a really intact, vibrant web of life. You're sort of left with um, the north of North America, right? Alaska and Northern Canada. And I think people are sort of unaware of how large, truly large, the, the northern part of North America is and how undeveloped it is. Like the, the narrative of Alaska out in the mainstream culture, I think is problematic in a lot of ways. And what it, what it um, leaves out is, is just how, how robust and how thriving these ecosystems still are. For instance, like I'll just interject real quickly. So it is too big for one to comprehend how vast it is. So having grown up for most of my youth, or at least from age nine to 17 in Anchorage, Alaska, you can't really understand where you are unless you go up in a plane or in a helicopter. And once you get up in the plane or the helicopter, you understand that you are looking upon vast, endless landscapes of countless lakes, countless mountain ranges. And I think even the lakes are too vast to even map. There would be too many to count. And so whenever anybody would, you know, ask me about growing up in Alaska and, oh, isn't that great? And, you know, you should go to the city. What I would always say is what you, you shouldn't go unless you have money to actually get in a plane or get in a helicopter and get up in the air so that you understand where you are. And Anchorage is in not as south, you're on the south tail that goes all the way down, but Anchorage is very south. It's on a bay. So, you know, that's the bottom part of Alaska. And then you have the entire state of Alaska, which continues from there. Yeah, it's great to try to frame the perspective in as many ways as possible, because it is almost incomprehensible. Alaska is, um, I believe, roughly a third of the size of 
the lower 48. So if you imagine the lower 48 and you divide it up into three pieces, and then you take away 100% basically of the human development, and it's the totally you know, intact ecosystems that existed there hundreds of years ago, and then you populate that space with only like 800,000 people, most of which are in a couple of cities. Like that's sort of the scale. It's geographically quite challenging, right? Like it's just sort of mountain range after mountain range after mountain range in a lot of the state, um, which is part of the reason why Alaska has been um, largely spared from intense human development. Part of that's just the, the march of time. You know, we just haven't quite had enough time yet to really develop the North. And then part of it is just like the logistical challenges um, of the distance and the physical geography. When we think about the Tongass, to bring it back to that, the Tongass is, wow, I mean, it's, it, is, it is beautiful beyond, I think, human language. It's, it's part of the contiguous ecosystem that starts down in the Pacific Northwest. So in a lot of ways, it's really similar to Oregon and Washington and even Northern California. These large um, evergreens and hemlocks, um, lots of moss and ferns, and a lot of water—like a really, a really robust water cycle in this ecosystem—and and a lot of life that is sustained by it. And for decades, the Tongass has been incredibly protected through a piece of legislation called the Roadless Rule. And the Roadless Rule is something that protects about 60 million acres of land across, I think, 39 states. So it's all over the country. And it's one of the most popular pieces of uh, environmental policy that the U.S. has ever had. It was instituted in 2001 by the Clinton administration uh, in an effort to sort of shore up and lock up some of the remaining intact and old growth forests in the country. Um, And it does that by preventing road building. Because if you can't build roads through vast swaths of wilderness, then you can't engage in really large-scale industrial logging. And in recent weeks, we've seen a full repeal of the roadless rule in Southeast Alaska, meaning that uh, an area about the size of the state of West Virginia, that is truly some of the Uh, most intact remaining wilderness on earth is now um, very unprotected. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I noticed, you know, this isn't a podcast to talk about politics, but now we're going to talk about politics. (laughs) Um, So I did see that uh, Trump did win Alaska, right? He was given Alaska yesterday. Um, And I was reflecting on that. Tell me, is it repealed by the Trump administration or? Yeah, Alaskan politics are so complicated. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess as politics everywhere are, but Alaskan politics are are really shaped by the populace's relationship to the land. And uh, there does tend to be a conservative slant. I find it to be more of a libertarian perspective than anything. People just live in the woods and like want to do their thing, you know? Um, But what gives me a lot of hope about what's happening in the Tongass and in ecosystems throughout Alaska in, in the Arctic, in Anwar and with Bristol Bay and the proposed pebble mine. I mean, there's, there's a real robust generation right now of um, development and extraction projects that are trying to be pushed through. But what gives me a lot of hope is how, um, how bipartisan the love of this land is, like regardless of people's um, political beliefs or affiliations, everyone is in agreement that this place is special and heartbreakingly beautiful and worthy of preservation in some regard, right? People have different opinions about how much is too much extraction or how much is the right amount of environmental policy. Like people are all over the place on, on that spectrum, of course, but there is this underlying agreement that we all have that our home is, is singular within the world. And that makes it possible to have conversations that are otherwise difficult, right? If you don't have that sort of really central and core piece of agreement to fall back on. And so I like just recently, I was having a conversation with a far, far right voter 
about how how outraged he was about the repeal of the roadless rule. So there are these contradictions in Alaskan politics, right? Like people could be voting one way, but have a totally different perspective in terms of environmental policy. And so long term, I, I do have hope that we will um, collectively awaken to to our responsibility to protect these ecosystems for generations to come. But it's definitely a really important and pivotal and sort of juicy time up here. There was a really, really mass uh, deregulation over the last four years. Well, and possibly this this could be uh, reversed again by by the Biden administration um, when they um, take office. So uh, Biden could reverse what's been reversed. So it could just be another reversal of the reversal. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, that is absolutely the the hope. Yes, yes. So this is really interesting to me. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you and I wanted to connect with you is definitely the Alaskan connection. And the other aspect is my connection to trees, to trees as living intelligences, as beings that have lived millions of years on this planet. And the fact that they really are the masters of community, understanding how to support one another, how to share nutrients, um, how to um, be a community, even, even for other species of trees. And, you know, the networks that take place under the soil and, uh, you know, the mythological sort of image or imagery of, of trees being elders or beings with great wisdom is something that uh, spiritually is a, is a, a um, like a, a priority to bring this awareness back into our lives front and center of actually being able to um, communicate with them and interact with them as the living beings and life forms that they are. And uh, I am um, connected with a very beloved community in Italy, um, in Northern Italy called Damanhur. And in Damanhur, they have a ritual uh, movement or uh, initiative that they've been engaged in for many years. And this movement is to create a communication with the trees, to bring the trees back into communication with humanity. Because as we've fallen asleep, we've lost this awareness that they are actually a very important part of what it means to be human, as is the entire plant kingdom. So um, they have a ritual where different individuals have traveled all over the world and they have um, created a ceremony where they have reoriented the trees into communion with, with humanity um, communicating to these ecosystems that we do care about them, that we are here to live in harmony and that we are here to um, share and learn from them and support them. And so secretly, like inside of my heart, um, I was hoping that I could share this practice with you and that we could possibly together create a, an orientation um, ceremony and movement where we could start to spiritually bring the activation and the protection around this beloved ecosystem. And um, Damanhur uh, is a spiritual community that has been uh, around for 46 years, and they are about diversity, celebration of diversity. And they, uh, as their gift to humanity, they built temples to mankind inside a mountain in secret. And it took them, they say, only took us 19 years is what they told me. Um, <laughs> but it's this extraordinary artistic offering of love for humanity. There are uh, eight temples that are dedicated to different aspects of life. And in one of the temples, which is the labyrinth, they have a stained glass altar that is created in devotion to every single living indigenous um, tradition of uh, God worship, whether it be a religion or Judaism or uh, Hawaiian, you know, um, Ohana, um, all kinds of uh, Pan and Celtic traditions. I mean, it's all there, every single one. 
And um, they really, really know that a, a thriving ecosystem in this realm uh, rests on the diversity of life. So for we just did a, um, a fundraising. Well, it sort of was really a ritual of spiritual richness, which we did in September over the equinox, the fall equinox. And we raised money um, participating in this activation of spiritual richness in all of our lives um, to s sustain and support the temples. And we're planning a second one that will take place on the solstice de in December. And uh, we want to include this, this ritual, this rite, this initiative of orienting trees. And so it's a very, very beautiful intention. And I think one that speaks to many, many humans' hearts um, because many of us remember these deep connections that we have with these great elders. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I very much resonate with what you said, and it, it really speaks to um, a period of, of personal growth that I'm working through right now, which is that for the last several years, I've been living... Um, essentially in isolation, like quite, quite removed, like living in small cabins outside of very remote towns in Alaska and engaged in a period of um, really intense <laughs> introspection and, and very much taking the curriculum of the ecosystem. And this, this uh, aspect of the journey that I'm stepping into now of um, using my voice to speak about what I see happening is very much new to me. I have been basically hanging out alone in the woods for the last few years. And that was great. And it was a period of very intense dismantling, which I think is language I first got from, from you, actually. The great dismantle. The blessing. Oh, the great the, the dismantle. <laughs> the sacred moment. Yes, absolutely. And it got dark for, at various periods and also very light and just it, really transformative. And um, the day last, the summer before last, I guess now, I believe it was late August or early September of 2019, when it was first announced that the roadless rule would likely be repealed. And it was clear at that point that the process would essentially be um, a farce, which is what it was, and that the, the voice of the people would not be respected. I was, um, I was made aware of the fact that I could no longer continue doing what I was doing, which was just like hiking and like walking around in the woods and foraging and like drinking water out of streams and like looking at bears and stuff, which is all extraordinary and worthwhile and still like my preferred way to spend my time. Um, but I realized that I was going to have to engage, which is not something that I previously knew how to do. Enter me. That must be why I found you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely feel it. But this is important. It's important, Tyler, because, okay, so we are at a pivotal moment of transformation in planetary history. It's, it's not like any time before. This is not like any time before. It is not. It is absolutely unprecedented. And so all are needed. You know, my, my friend Guru Singh said this to me once, which is really beautiful. All of us are needed. And the thing is, is that, yes, all of that experience that you've had communing with nature at that level was a necessary part of your connection and not only your connection, but your, your physical coding, what your body takes in from that ecosystem and the transformation that's happening uh, beyond the physical body, even in your spiritual body and emotional body and other bodies that make up what it is to be a light being. Um, and yes, all are needed. So you carry those messages in different aspects of yourself, the messages of the lands of the animals, and you can't be living in that close of communion with those elements and not be transformed by them, you are. But I think another thing that's really profound about this conversation that we're having together is that, 
you know, you're not like the president of the organization of, you know, land conservation, you know, like I, like I didn't have a big bio to introduce you. And, and that's really important because those of us that are going to transform the planet are each and every one of us in our own individual places. And it's not about gathering and donating money to big organizations. You know what I mean? It's almost like it's about recreating person by person, soul by soul, this pathway. And it's like, you have this experience that is completely unique. I mean, I have not met another individual who has had experience being so close to the bears, you know, and when you look back in the rearview mirror, you can see the whole trajectory, right? Also very unusual that both of your parents were, you know, in their infancy in Alaska. You have this unique life that has informed your experience and you understand what there is to be lost because you have been so present in it. You know, you didn't read about it on a book or, you know, or online or see something and then say like, yeah, I want to support the rainforest. And we do, we need to support all the rainforests. But I guess what I'm saying is I'm loving the, the pure, innocent, natural, spontaneous connection to this movement. And then maybe from my end, you know, having been raised in Alaska, um, by a hunter, you know, by somebody who would have he would have had a pistol pr to protect us. And, you know, sometimes we were out cross-country skiing and we would ski up on a, you know, a, a mother moose and her and her babies. And, you know, I was glad he had a gun. I mean, she, you know, you don't plan those things. He never shot when we were there. You know, we were able to get away and back off and that was fine. But, you know, it's very real. Uh, game and wildlife interaction is very real up there. Um, but I guess the other thing that's interesting and profound for me is that when my dad passed away, uh, you know, there were lots of guns and lots of taxidermied items to be, you know, placed. And of all the kids, you know, I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Like, I'm just fine. I've got his poncho and his slippers and, you know, I'm a-okay. And then um, I got all the skulls, all the raw skulls. So I have a skull of an 11 and a half foot grizzly bear that he shot on Kodiak Island. And I have a whole other collection of skulls and I use them in ceremony, like as a shaman. So, and I'm having this very deep relationship with my father um, out of body. He ended up having a very sacred death, a, like yogi death and profound, profound um, sort of, uh, uh, what I want to say, like a uh, resolution to both of our lives being two people that didn't see life the same way at all. So it is interesting to me. I am close with the bear, the bear of the, the totem bear. And I have uh, visited bear in ceremony, um, you know, a few times um, to respectfully request for guidance and wisdom Um and, you know, I, I had great respect for my father as well because he was a pilot and, you know, would drive, fly by Mount McKinley and basically what is a tin can with me. And, <laughs> you know, he would, he would land the plane and sleep on a glacier and be out in the wilderness for months at a time. And, you know, yeah, he would shoot something with a bullet. So he was not a bow hunter, but he would have to skin it and cut it up and put it on his back and you know, carry it down a river and then take multiple trips. Like it's like, wasn't as easy as going into the market and buying a package of, of meat. So I always respected him because he knew where it came from and he was okay with that. So, um, life is a journey. We're all very different, but I think that it is clear at this moment, the pressing nature of the protection of our forests which are the lungs of our planet. Um, and as we see global warming getting more evident, you know, we're late in the game to be even finally getting this. And I guess for me, because everything that I do in my life is a spiritual journey of, of a mystic, you know, treasure that is uncovered, um, is that this, this orientation with the trees as living elders is something that is 
really touched my heart. So tell us, how could we get involved to support the Tongas? And what do you recommend? And what are you calling for people to do? Yeah, I'd love to start building that picture by by framing um, why the Tongas is uh, specifically so critical on a global stage. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier with the macro perspective and then the micro. From, from that macro perspective, from the view of the whole world, we're all looking for climate solutions, right? We're all uh, incredibly existentially concerned about what is happening to the state of the biosphere. And one of the most incredible climate wins that is sitting right in front of us is to just not engage in industrial development in the north. These ecosystems are massive and they are whole and they are water cleansing, carbon storing, atmosphere stabilizing giants. And the challenge, the challenge for people like myself who live here and who are so invested in the protection of these ecosystems is that there's just not that many of us. Like it's just a very unpopulated place. And the people who represent Alaska politically are very motivated to develop the North, which I, I spend a lot of time trying to feel into and to understand where they're at. And I get it. Their job is to provide jobs to people who live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and like there's nothing else going on. And they are tasked with raising money for a state government that is struggling. So the people who um, hold really high power are very actively trying to engage in really large-scale development, uh, logging, oil exploration, mineral mining, really the whole gamut. And the whole world, every human on this planet has the right to be interested and invested in Northern preservation because it is so critical in the effort to reduce the impacts of the climate crisis. Like if we just don't cut down the Tongass, then our nation's largest national forest that stores more carbon than any other national forest that cleans water and cycles air and has one of the most abundant microbiomes and webs of life on earth, then it's just still there. It's still supporting us. It's still stabilizing us. And it's helping us as we move through the coming decades and centuries when we're really going to need some intact ecosystems to lean on and to learn from. That's really what I want to share because the mainstream narrative about Alaska is really problematic, right? Like you've got reality TV shows, <laughs> which are, you know, not great. And then you've got articles that are pretty sanitized. Uh, like the, the articles that come up in the national media about um, extraction issues in Alaska, I find them to be missing the mark, right? Like these are, these are reporters who are incredible at their jobs, who are at the top of their fields but who don't like have maybe never been here or have been here once for like a second and they were just totally overwhelmed and then they left. And so the, the, I read them and it's like, they're, they're really lacking in conveying the, the truth of what is happening. And so because of that, because of those few ways in which Alaska enters the mainstream consciousness, I, I think that the, the issues around a, a place like the Tongas feel distant to most people and feel remote and feel like someone else's problem or someone else's home. But we all live on this planet and we live in a globalized society and a global community. And it is my deepest hope that we will awaken to the fact that the Tongass is sacred beyond measure and is is here for us. And like the Tongass, you know, I spend a lot of time sitting in the Tongass. There's like this one specific thousand year old, I, I'm estimating that this tree is about a thousand years old based on its size. I spend a, lot, spend a lot of time sitting at the base of it. And the message I get from this tree is that the Tongass does not care if we cut it down, right? Like the Tongass has no ego. The Tongass is not trying to preserve its own existence. The Tongass is just living. And if we develop the Tongass, there will be immense suffering of the of the beings who depend on it. But ultimately, Tongass time is long. Like the Tongass is like, if you guys like, you know, mess this up, like whatever, you're obviously making poor choices and like I'll just wait you out, right? Like the Tongass is open to whatever happens. I believe that this ecosystem, as all ecosystems do, has incredible inherent worth. 
But at the end of the day, the reason that I feel so strongly that it is critical that we not engage in the kind of extractive industry that we have seen prove disastrous the world over in the North is that it is ultimately humanity that will suffer. And so, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it's like the earth is going to, she is going to continue to evolve and transform whether humans are a part of it is the question. And so wouldn't it be amazing if instead of, you know, developing something and and cutting something down and destroying it, and then we had to fix it. How about if we just don't do it? How about just not doing it? That would be good. (laughs) We we have enough other things that, you know, that we're, that we're going to have to shift, that we're going to have to, you know, find miraculous solutions. And when I saw Paul Hawken, the founder of Drawdown Project, which I highly recommend everybody get very familiar with it, you know, when he showed the data of global warming, this was already probably three years ago, the first time I met him, um, you know, he shows this, you know, because people go, oh, well, the planet has always warmed historically. And you you guys know I'm not a facts and figure person, so I'm not going to, you know, re recite the facts. But I'll just tell you, the graph was like over the millions of years, it went kind of here, then kind of there, then kind of here. And then all of a sudden you got to present day and it was like 490% spiked beyond anything we ever thought. And the, in the, in the heating and the, and really what's going on. And, you know, it is just beyond anything that we can ever imagine. And one thing that is clear is that the entire planet is an ecosystem and we need to preserve our lungs of our planet, the ecosystems that are intact, and stop allowing gas, oil, you know, and all of these big interests to just keep destroying our natural habitat. We are not separate from the earth. We are the earth. We are one. We are all one. So, um, you know, it is, it's, it's really, really important. And the good news is there's lots of work to be done and there's lots of different ways you can get involved. And so um, before we go to you sharing us like any links and how to reach you, I just wanted to ask, are you in um, touch with the indigenous of this area and how is that relation and what have you learned and, and how is that informing your commitment? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing that up. The, the Tongass is um, the ancestral home of the Clinket, Haida, and Simshian peoples. Um, where I live specifically in the area around Haines, which is known as Deshu in the Clinket language, is the home of the Chilkat and Chilkut Clinket. And I am very much a student of their culture and land stewardship practices. And that, that studentship is very much in its early phase. And there's, I mean, just millennia, right? Like thousands of years of history here and, and a culture that I have um, really the utmost respect for. And yeah, the community I live in is very much comprised of both indigenous and non-indigenous Alaskans. And there are so many incredible activists and artists and speakers and musicians and all really all forms of, of expression um, happening within, within the indigenous culture here. And um, definitely I see as part of my work is to raise up those voices and to um, do what I can to create a platform for people who, who have this, this deep land knowledge in their, in their DNA going back three, four or 5,000 years. So I uh, have a couple of indigenous community members here who I regularly learn from. I have not yet gained permission to share their stories or speak about the culture, which is something that comes at a certain point. But what I can say is that I learn a lot and uh, yeah, they, they continue to transform my perspective through folklore. It's beautiful. So with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up and many of us with new eyes and awareness on the need to recognize the indigenous and to really respect and, and see them in the truth of who they are and all of their beauty and also all the suffering that has been inflicted upon them. Is there a way we can donate with that? 
you know, those of us that want to support the indigenous through offerings, financial offerings, is there a GoFundMe page? Is there any movement that's been started? And then the second thing would be is how do we get involved um, supporting the Tongass and bringing awareness to this sacred part of Southeast Alaska? Uh, on an organizational level, there are a couple of regional nonprofits that are doing um, really powerful work and really leading the way in terms of um, the translation of policy and the, the the litigation, and they're really sort of spearheading um, you know that that aspect of the resistance to the development of the Tongass. Southeast Alaska Conservation Council is one that I have a lot of respect for. I'm not affiliated with them in any way. I just really appreciate the work that they do. Um, And again, that work is sort of uh, trans community. So it's um, indigenous, non-indigenous, all throughout Southeast Alaska. Um, They, yeah, they have a very, a very powerful voice. And if you're interested in um, coming involved or learning about this issue, from that sort of, or through rather that sort of nonprofit lens, I would encourage you to check out Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, either their website or their Instagram. Um, Something that I have launched recently in response to what's happening in the Tongass that I'm really excited about is the Ground Truth Fund. Um, And this is a way to support local activists who otherwise uh, might struggle to meet the financial challenges that Alaska presents. There are so many incredibly talented and passionate activists across all disciplines and mediums in the state, but the barriers to accessing threatened ecosystems are immense. (laughs) Like it's, you know, it's days of travel. There's small planes, there's four wheelers, there's bikes, there's walking, there's like, there's just, um, you know, it's not like you can just go to the airport and like take a flight to like the, uh, a thousand-year-old stand of threatened old growth, on, old growth rather on Prince of Wales Island. And so, something that I see as crucial in the coming years, as we work to reinstate the protections that have safeguarded Alaskan ecosystems for decades, is the Ground Truth Fund, and this can be found. Um, through the link tree in my Instagram bio. And it, it takes you to a really full description. And my intention is to create a large pool of funds over the winter so that I can award grants this coming spring when uh, we've moved hopefully through this heavy season of the COVID crisis and when it is more appropriate um, in terms of weather and the actual environment for people to be going out in the North and engaging in activism, whether that be creating short films, creating music, taking photos, organizing protests, whatever it might be. Um, my intention is to, is to help get as many activists as possible access to the ecosystems that they are so invested in protecting because these places are their homes. And so if you're interested in donating directly to, to the effort to support activism in the North, um, specifically in the Tongass, in Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and in um, Southwest Alaska with the proposed Pebble Mine Project, check out that link in my link tree. Um, I've also got in the link tree a map of what's happened in the Tongass. We've, we've talked a lot about this large ecosystem, but I find that the, viewing the actual map of the land that has recently had protections removed from it is really powerful. It really uh, helps the perspective of scale sink in. And that map is very hard to find on the USDA website. I actually had to have like a professional policy analyst find it for me. It is conveniently hidden. And so I have linked that map on my Instagram if you would like to sort of work visually with, with this landscape we're talking about. Get a visual on it. And you are on Instagram. You are Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, Yarrow, Y-A-R-R-O-W. All right. Well, Tyler, you know, it's the beginning. I'm I'm very intrigued um, to find out where your journey takes you. 
Um, and I'm very happy to meet you and to know more about your story. And I hope that, you know, you will be a line of communication into this very sacred area of the world. And also as you gain the permission to share the story of the indigenous of the region, I would love to know more about that and possibly invite someone back on to share from that community. I think that this is a profound moment and it's really, really beautiful that you have had that life experience so far that has brought you so close to nature so that you can remind us all just how important this is to our very own lives, um, both individually, collectively, and as a species. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real, real honor to speak with you today and to have the chance to to speak for the Tongass. I mean, this this ecosystem is is literally in every single cell of my body. I drink water from a mountain spring that comes out of the Tongass. And so it is very deep inside my very existence. And it being threatened feels like my own existence is threatened. And so to have the opportunity to speak to an audience who might not really have it um, in their awareness or on their radar is, is a real honor. And yeah, I'm happy to be here. Oh, thank you, Tyler. So nice to meet you. And um, we'll check in in the coming months. And um, I'm just sending you so much love. So um, thanks so much for tuning in this week. And um, before we go, I just want to remind you guys about my plant-based uh, initiative, which is Shrimu, not cheese. It is the next evolution of cheese, which is an impact food that is uplifting the vibration of our bodies, the lives of our children, our beloved animals, and our planet. It is artisanal, pure, and beautiful. You will not miss any dairy cheese experience after experiencing Shrimu. It is tangy, cheesy, full-bodied, creamy, and absolutely divine. We are a subscription offering delivering straight to your home during COVID. And always, uh, we have a few product offerings. You can uh, choose your frequency either monthly, every other month, or every three months. So if you want to know more about the flavor profiles and experience the divine vibration of Shrimu, go to Shrimu.com, S-R-I-M-U.com. And uh, until next time, I'm sending you all so much love. Be well and have a beautiful week. Get out in nature. Feel yourself connected to this divine ecosystem of which we are a part. And remember to love your mother. I'm talking about Mother Earth. Namaste. Namaste.